0: You are listening to the fourth and final episode of a short series produced by Hope PR Ministry on the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. In this episode, we continue to seek to learn more about the biblical truths surrounding this subject, again in particular, divorce and remarriage. And the main question which we are seeking to answer is, what does God say on the matter? Professor David Engelsma joined us again for this episode, having dealt with this topic many times during his ministry and also having written several books on the subject, which you can find linked in the episode description. We hope you enjoy this content.
1: It's unusual that you ask me to
0: speak. Many have asked me to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to Hope PR Ministry. My name is Josh Harris and I'm again sat with my co-host Jeff Kalsbeek. Hey Jeff. Hi Josh. It's good to have you with us again. And we're also sat with Professor David Engelsmer again. Hi, Prof. Good afternoon. Uh, so we're continuing our series. There's lots to lots to cover within the subject of course and a lot of questions that many people might have. Um, we've mentioned it the past few times. We would love to hear from our listeners. Please contact us if you do have any questions, comments at hoperwc at gmail.com. And even if it's not a question We would also love to hear about anyone who shares the same view on divorce and remarriage, whether it's as part of a denomination or an independent church, we would love to hear from you. So please feel free to reach out to us with any questions.
2: Yeah, and uh, last time, just to recap a little bit, we we went through a few passages with Professor Ingelsma, and he explained those passages and show that jesus taught that uh, sin particularly divorce cannot break or dissolve the marriage bond and that uh, jesus himself taught that in those uh, new testament passages so it's a matter of submitting to jesus himself And so today we're going to pick up and maybe go through some of the practical circumstances on this teaching of divorce and remarriage that we've talked about in the last couple of podcasts and then how that developed in the history of the Protestant Reformed Churches and ask Professor
0: some questions regarding that. So we'd like to begin by asking about the circumstance of a divorced and remarried couple who have been converted and they're now faced with this teaching of divorce and remarriage which we have discussed in previous episodes. What does God's Word have to say to someone who is divorced and remarried while their first spouse is still living but they come to a proper understanding of divorce and remarriage whilst in their second marriage, even with children in that second marriage?
1: The situation that you describe and refer to is undoubtedly the most Difficult situation of all in the matter of the truth of God's word concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage. There are people who have divorced and remarried when they were in a condition of unbelief, or in a condition anyway of ignorance of the teaching of the Bible concerning the truth of marriage, and they have produced children so that they have a home life which apparently is Christian and certainly comfortable for themselves. And the question then is raised when they come into contact with the biblical teaching of lifelong marriage, what now must we do? And invariably that question is accompanied by an objection before they ever hear the truth of the Word of God about their situation. Certainly God would not require us to abandon our mate and our family. The biblical response to that question and the biblical light that shines upon their situation is that they are living in a state of adultery, regardless that they did not know when they remarried that that was adultery. The Bible clearly teaches in Matthew 19, in Luke 16, and in 1 Corinthians 7, that remarriage after divorce while the original mate is still living is adultery. And that judgment by Holy Scripture stands regardless of the difficult circumstances in which that places certain people who confess to be Christians. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. That's a motto that's familiar in secular society. And the truth of that certainly applies to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of Jesus Christ requires a certain state of holiness of life, regardless of the difficulty of living that holy life on the part of some. The truth about marriage is not only a truth within the church, but it's also a truth that applies to all of society regardless whether society is aware of this truth or ignorant of this truth. It's important to notice that God instituted marriage prior to the establishment of the church so that the reality of marriage applies to earthly society and not only to the church. And the standard, the truth of the Bible concerning marriage, whether in society or in the church, whether People are aware of this truth or ignorant of this truth is that one man marries one woman for life and that remarriage after divorce while an original mate is still living is adultery regardless whether the people were aware of that when they remarried or not. The calling therefore of the one who has been converted specifically now in his knowledge of the truth of marriage The calling of such a one is that he must live separately from his wife, or she must live separately from her second husband, and do the best they can cooperatively with regard to the raising of what children God may have provided for that family. Admittedly, this is a difficult calling, but we must not forget that the calling to be a Christian and to live a Christian life is difficult, in any situation and that there are certain applications of this calling that are extremely painful. I think, for example, of the calling of a Christian to confess the name of Jesus Christ against a persecuting world. The effect of that confession of Jesus Christ may very well be that one is imprisoned or even killed, tortured and killed, but the difficulty of the calling of the Christian does not negate the calling itself. The Christian is called to live a pure sexual life regardless of the difficulties of the implication of that for the child of God. So living separately from one's wife or husband is not altogether outside the realm of the reality of the Christian life in many other circumstances as well. Admittedly, to live separately from one to whom one has been married, at least as far as society is concerned, is difficult. It demands sacrifice, but the Christian life always is a matter of sacrifice, and so it ought not to be thought altogether strange that this is a calling of those who have broken the law of God in their ignorant, unbelieving situation. The basic facts of the matter are that remarriage after divorce is sin. Whether one was aware of that or was not aware of that, And the calling of the repentant child of God is to break with the commission of sin in his life. Therefore, the two who have been remarried, as far as the state is concerned, the calling is to live separately, regardless of the difficulties of that situation.
2: Now, um,
1: separation or divorce
2: is uh, devastating to children does that play any part in in this consideration that there are children involved and children
1: of divorce uh, suffer greatly in, in a situation like this? The calling of those who have been remarried in ignorance and unbelief to separate certainly will have a tremendous effect upon the children. They will no longer be raised by two parents. But don't forget that Under the blessing of God, the faithfulness of the parents to obey the word of God by living separately may very well have a beneficial effect upon the children. They will have impressed upon them how important the calling to live the Christian life is, so that their parents even live separately in obedience to that Christian calling. And as I indicated earlier, although the parents must live separately, they can still cooperate in certain ways to raise their children together. The husband will support his wife and his children financially and take the children to himself individually from time to time so that they agree on the teaching and the rearing of the children as much as possible, even though they're not living together under the same roof they don't abandon their children, necessarily, because yeah, they obey true. the Word of God to live separately.
2: Was that what uh, Ezra, he told the priests to leave their second wife when they had uh, abandoned their
1: the wife of their youth? There is a certain application of that incident in the life of Israel at the time of Ezra. The men of Israel had married heathen wives, and Ezra demanded that they put those heathen wives away with their children. So there's a principle there that applies to the church today, but the application of that historical event in the history of Israel does not apply in its detail to the church today. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, the apostle deals with a similar situation. There were men in the church who had married unbelievers before they had been converted to Christ. And the wife had not been converted so that a believer and an unbeliever were living together under the same roof in the institution of marriage. And Paul commands the believer to remain in the relationship with the unbeliever if the unbeliever is willing to have this take place. And he assures the believer that the unbelief of the, of the unbeliever will not dominate in the marriage and in the family, but that the faith of the believer will be the dominating spiritual power. So there you have a situation similar to the situation in Ezra's time, but the believer is called to live in the relationship in the New Testament, whereas in the time of Ezra, the men of Judah had to put their unbelieving spouses away.
2: I was thinking that, that that was because they had an original spouse.
1: I don't recall that those were the dominating factors in the command of Ezra, but that Ezra had his eye on the fact simply that the men of Judah had taken unbelieving, idolatrous wives okay. in the marriage, and they were to put them away because of their unbelief. There is a difference in the application of the great truth of marriage, the application, I say between the Old Testament and the New Testament, just as there is a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament with regard to polygamy. I think we talked about that last time. In the Old Testament, some of God's children had many wives, David and Solomon, come to mind, and that does not apply to the men of the church today.
2: Office bearers who... uh counsel divorced members to remarry and then the, those members do. Would you say that, that they have the greater sin when office bearers are counseling to remarry?
1: That question is reality today in the nominal church. There are many ministers and elders who approve of remarriage after divorce and in that advise members of the church to remarry. Their advice is wrong and sinful and mistaken, and by that advice they share in the sin of adultery, which they counsel the members of the church to live in. And that fact makes what we're doing here in this conversation extremely important particularly if God gives an extended audience to our conversation about marriage. This will put office bearers on guard lest they make themselves guilty of connivance at the sin of adultery by approving the remarriage of members of their church when an original member is still alive. The matter that we're discussing is not merely an academic or theological matter without any practical application. I am contending... And I have demonstrated from Scripture conclusively that remarriage after divorce, while the original mate is still living, is adultery. And adultery, impenitently continued in, plunges the adulterer into hell. So this has the gravest practical application to what is going on in many of the churches today. And God grant that there are many who listen to what we're saying, and listening with a
0: believing and obedient heart so that they
1: mend their manners and change their ways
0: you said that this is a very real threat in the church today where office-bearers will give wrong advice to remarry to a to an individual how important of a factor is it then when this is such a real concern and an issue within the church how, how important of a factor is it for a couple when looking for a new church to seek out a church which teaches the biblical truths of Scripture
1: The stand of a church on the important matter of marriage, and I hardly need to state that the matter of marriage is a crucially important reality in the life of most Christians, such is the importance of the stand of a church regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage, that those who are searching for church membership must make this a fundamental matter in their decision. If a church approves remarriage after divorce and welcomes such persons to the Lord's Supper table, they are contradicting a fundamental teaching of the Bible regarding the Christian life. And in connection with that, they are putting themselves in the position that they take the Lord's Supper with practicing adulterers. And that means that the person who joins that church becomes guilty of the sin of adultery himself or herself by the fellowship that he or she has with these practicing adulterers. Just to speak of the Lord's Supper, the Bible warns against partaking of the Lord's Supper with those who are living impenitently in sin and the warning of scripture and of the reformed form for the Lord's Supper is that such a one becomes himself guilty of the sin of the one with whom he is taking the Lord's Supper. So this is an extremely important matter practically. The wrath of God comes down upon the whole congregation of persons and office bearers who are practicing adultery.
0: That's really interesting and what you say as well which applying to the Lord's Supper that That doesn't just apply to marriage, of course. It applies to all doctrines within the church. When the church does not hold to the truths of Scripture and there is open sin occurring in the congregation, when you take the Lord's Supper with those individuals, that's not right at all. And again, it shows the importance of aligning yourself with a church which holds to the truths of Scripture and agree, and that you agree with the truths that are taught in that church. The truth of
1: this. Came home to me again recently since we have gathered at our last meeting to discuss the truth of marriage, divorce, and remarriage there are those who are doing that very thing at present. They're leaving the Protestant Reformed churches and joining a Presbyterian church that permits remarriage after divorce, both on the ground of the adultery of one's mate and on the ground of having been deserted by one's mate. This is the official position of this Presbyterian church, and undoubtedly there are members in the church who are divorced and remarried as the church permits and these people came to me for counsel, and among my counsel was, you better be on your guard when you have to answer to Christ for this, that you will be going to the Lord's Supper with divorced and remarried persons who are living in the sin of adultery, according to Jesus in Matthew 19 and Luke 16, and according to the Apostle Paul, very plainly in 1 Corinthians 7. And of course, the warning was, you may not join a church that proves of continual adultery. You must take this into consideration when you're making a decision regarding church membership. Now, that seems to be a hard piece of advice, but as I said before, this is not my own personal law. This is the law and rule of Jesus himself repeatedly in the Gospels and of Paul as bluntly and plainly as is possible in 1 Corinthians 7. We've looked at and quoted the passages in 1 Corinthians 7. And I remind us and the audience of 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, where the apostle wraps up all that he has been teaching about the permanency, the lifelong permanency of marriage. The wife is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. Now, it can't be any clearer than it is there, and if that rule is broken by remarriage, as is the case in many churches today, you have stark contradiction of the word of the apostle and the overthrow of the institution of marriage and the condemnation of remarried persons as adulterers, and that certainly must be taken into account when someone decides on his or her church membership. And of course, there's also this implication of joining a church where this is practiced, and that is that one's own generations, children, will actually divorce and remarry, so that one brings this sin into one's own physical family, where the possibility is very, really there. Now, this message is ignored and minimized. And when this testimony is given, the reaction of the leaders of such churches is sarcasm and condemnation. But as I've said before, this is the plain teaching of the Bible. This is not the teaching merely of a certain denomination of churches or of certain theologians. All that we do is refer to and quote and apply the word of the Lord himself who determines the Christian life. He does. And it's all in the interest of the permanency of marriage, the worth of which cannot be overemphasized. We shouldn't forget that. Our condemnation of divorce and remarriage is in the interest of the maintenance of marriage. I may have mentioned this before, but I was a pastor in the churches for 25 years and did my share of practical pastoral work. And I have realized through that work so seemingly fragile many marriages are in the church. Open the door to divorce and remarriage and you're going to have a flood of divorces and remarriages to the dishonoring of God, to the destruction of children. Talk about children who are affected by the divorcing or separating of parents who had remarried in their ignorance. Far more grave and threatening is the destruction of children whose parents in the church divorce and marry somebody else they're destroyed by that instability of the marriage of their father and mother. So what stand we take is in the interest of the welfare of the covenant children of the church.
2: Yeah, I know my own nature. If, if I was in that situation, I, I could see my own nature looking at the church world as a whole and their acceptance of divorce and remarriage and determining for myself, I'm going to go to a church that allows me to do my
1: own will and remarry if I want. It's our, our, our nature. How often doesn't it happen in the best of marriages among the holiest of the people of God that a wife gets on a husband's nerves and even worse, angers him? Or the husband, the wife, and the thought of divorcing this woman or divorcing this man and finding a better mate doesn't come up in the in the thinking of the best of Christians. Now let the church say that's possible, that's permissible, and the consequences are disastrous for yeah. the Institution of marriage and for the children in the family.
0: What you say there, Jeff, as well. That's that's the easy way for one to take. The Christian life is not an easy life by any means. You hinted at as well earlier on in our recording today, uh, Professor. The Christian life is a life of difficult choices and difficult decisions, which have difficult outcomes. That's the way it's going to be. We've been told by Christ in the past, in His Word, that Christians are going to have suffering in this life where to to expect it. We're not to expect an easy life and to have easy way outs like that. Jesus himself said, and that applies to
1: marriage as well as every other aspect of the Christian life, the way is narrow, it's not wide, it's narrow for us all. And faithfulness in marriage is not the only aspect of that narrowness, but it certainly is one of them.
2: I can see that from the point of view too of office bearers, when when you speak of the narrow or the wide way has to be tempting for office bearers too. They stand in the place of Christ, but they see almost the entire church world, it seems, allowing for divorce and remarriage. And they counsel to allow it as well because they don't want to be isolated as churches from the, the entire church world, it seems like. From that point of view too, the church leaders of today, there's a great temptation for that, I would imagine.
1: There's something despicable about that kind of advice by an office bearer, in my judgment, when you're in the midst of a pastoral situation that deals with a marriage that's on the rock, so to speak. The easy way, the way that pleases the two people who are sitting there getting your advice, is to counsel, well, you, you may divorce, and there's always a the prospect of a better mate that you may take to yourself. Then you're a popular counselor, and you please the people that you're counseling. But you don't please Christ, and the counsel sometimes is hard. The way to the kingdom is narrow, and we're bound to give the counsel that is founded upon the Word of God.
2: Yeah, reminded that we have to pray for our office bearers, that they're not men-pleasers. Absolutely. Because that's our nature, too. So there's all sorts of complicated uh, situations. There's all kinds of questions. Once there's uh, divorce and remarriage, and uh, the implication is be faithful in your marriage. When you see, when you see all of the, the devastation out there, the importance of remaining faithful in your marriage.
1: That's the positive calling, and that calling is underscored with regard to its consciousness in the mind of the husband and the wife. If it lives in their consciousness, this marriage to this man or this woman is for life, regardless of circumstances, regardless of the difficulty, regardless that she doesn't please me the way I'd like her to do, or I don't, or the husband doesn't please me the way I want a husband to please me. And what does that do? That motivates the two to Exert themselves to live the way they ought to in marriage. The husband to govern in love and the wife to submit as the church submits to Christ. But if always there's in the back of your mind, if it doesn't work, there's an escape route. The husband and the wife or the wife are not going to exert themselves to forgive each other and to pattern their life after the biblical examples.
2: Could you tell us, Professor? regarding the historical position of the Protestant Reformed Churches and how that came to be, especially in uh, the founder, Reverend Hoeksema.
1: The way in which the Protestant Reformed Churches came to this conviction concerning the permanency of marriage is both interesting and instructive. For some years after the Protestant Reformed Churches were established in 1924, the position of the leader of the churches, Herman Hoeksema, and of the churches themselves was that marriage is lifelong except in the case of adultery. And by that, they meant not only that the only ground for divorce was adultery, but also that adultery was the ground of a remarriage. Hermann Huximma and the Protestant Reformed Churches came out of the Christian Reformed Church, and Huximma himself admitted that for some years after the founding of the Protestant Reformed Churches, his doctrine of marriage was that which he had learned in the Christian Reformed Church and which was the position of the Christian Reformed Church. And that was the position I've just described, that there is a ground for divorce and remarriage, and that that ground is adultery. Now that's a pretty strong stand all by itself alone. If there's only one ground for divorce and one ground for remarriage, and that ground is adultery, that does not open the doors as widely to remarriage as might otherwise be the case. But he acknowledged that he had this stand or position on remarriage simply because this was what he had learned and carried with him and never thought much about out of the Christian Reformed Church. But interestingly, he did not change that stand and arrive at the position that adultery does not dissolve the marriage simply and solely on the basis of the teaching of the Bible itself about divorce and remarriage. Rather, he came to this position in a striking way, and that was he studied thoroughly the truth, the biblical truth of the covenant, And was led to the conviction that the covenant of God is an unbreakable bond of friendship between God and his elect people, so that although the impenitent wickedness for a while of the child of God is a ground and reason why God withdraws the experience of his love and favor for a while, the covenant is essentially unbreakable. Once that bond has been established with the child of God, that bond is permanent And not even the sinfulness of a child of God, the great sinfulness of a child of God, what we might call spiritual adultery, dissolves that bond. God is faithful in the covenant and maintains the covenant. Now what does that have to do with the truth about marriage, you may ask? And the answer is the Bible itself makes our marriages a symbol of the covenant of grace. That's done in the Old Testament in many places. That's repeated in the New Testament at the end of Ephesians 5, where Paul compares the relationship of Christ and the church to the relationship of a a believing husband and his believing wife. And in that way, Huximah came to the conviction that just as the bond between Christ and the church is unbreakable, so that no third party replaces the church, so also the symbol of that covenant relationship is unbreakable. And that led him to re-examine the biblical testimony concerning marriage itself. And he found, not surprisingly, that the Bible addressing the matter of marriage teaches that very truth. Marriage is unbreakable just as the covenant is unbreakable. And that's an aspect to this whole question that many churches do not pay attention to. The implication of the the breakable character of marriage is that the covenant also is breakable. And we find that in the teaching of the church. The churches that teach that adultery dissolves a marriage so that a man or a woman may remarry also teach that the covenant is conditional so that it's possible for someone with whom God has established his covenant and to whom God has made his covenant promise to violate that covenant so that that covenant relationship is broken and he's no longer in the covenant. covenant and marriage go hand in hand, and the truth of one is the truth of the other, so that the Protestant Reformed churches are known not only for teaching the unbreakable bond of marriage, which is a glorious reputation, regardless of the criticism and the disparagement, I rejoice in being part of a denomination that's known for teaching the unbreakable character of marriage, but not only are the Protestant Reformed churches known for that, they're also known for teaching the unconditional and unbreakable covenant relation between God and his elect people.
2: That is interesting that development in doctrine led to uh, a development in uh, the practical uh, life of the children of God.
1: Yes, that's significant. But it also points out that churches and confessing believers who are quick because of the difficult circumstances of themselves or people they know and love, quick to teach that marriage can be dissolved had better realize that essentially they are also at the same time teaching that God's saving covenant with his people is breakable. And if they're not impressed by the severity of the sin of their teaching regarding marriage, they ought to be convinced of the severity of the matter of their implied teaching concerning the covenant of grace itself.
0: You talk about the unbreakable nature of the covenant as well and how it applies to marriage. Where in scripture can you appeal to that shows the unbreakable nature of God's covenant? The clearest
1: New Testament testimony to the unbreakable character of the covenant is the second part, the latter part of Ephesians chapter five, where the unbreakable nature of the union of Christ and the church is testified. The word covenant may not be used there or found there, but the relationship between Jesus and his church is the covenant relationship. And in that whole passage, the apostle teaches mainly, that's his main teaching, not so much about marriage as about the relation of Christ and the church, that the relation of Christ and the church is an unbreakable, faithful, everlasting relationship. And marriage, in comparison with that covenant union, because marriage is the symbol, likewise partakes of that lifelong character.
2: Now the reformers, Luther and Calvin, they allowed for divorce and remarriage to a certain extent uh, as well, right? And that's where the Reformed churches in the past have
1: followed their lead? There are especially in the voluminous writings of Martin Luther statements to the effect that marriage is an unbreakable bond and violent condemnation, whatever Luther taught was violent, I guess I don't have to add (laughs) that, but violent condemnation of divorces and remarriages. And yet, when he dealt with the subject itself, it is to be admitted he allowed for divorce and remarriage on the ground of adultery, and Calvin certainly did. Now, an explanation of that, they simply took over, in part anyway, what the Roman Catholic Church before them had been teaching. It was an almost uncritical acceptance of the common popular teaching in the Roman Catholic Church of the permissibility of remarriage after divorce in the case of adultery. But there's another factor that mitigates the permission of the reformers with regard to remarriage after divorce, and that is the Roman Catholic Church taught that marriage was a sacrament, and whatever the Roman Catholic Church taught about the permanency of marriage, it taught in terms of the sacramental nature of marriage, When it made strong statements about marriage being permanent, lifelong, Rome grounded that in the teaching that marriage was a sacrament. The Reformers condemned that notion that marriage is a sacrament and supposed that by condemning the sacramental nature of marriage, it was also rejecting the lifelong permanency of marriage. To put it in a slightly different way, I contend that if John Calvin had recognized that the condemnation of remarriage was not grounded in the sacramental nature of marriage but in the symbolism of marriage and the covenant and had examined the biblical teaching about marriage without the bias that came from Rome's teaching of the sacramental nature of marriage, he might have come to a different stand with regard to marriage, divorce, and remarriage.
2: And the doctrine of the covenant was not at all developed at that time.
1: That's correct. But then in the end, with regard to the unfortunate teaching of the Reformers, our stand is that we must be governed by such an important matter as marriage by the Scriptures and not by the Reformers. We allow ourselves to be led by the Reformers in many respects because they were sound, but the authority for our teaching and practice is not John Calvin or Martin Luther, but the Scriptures, the Word of God. And the Word of God condemns their toleration of remarriage. That's unfortunate, I grieve over that, but Calvin and Luther know the truth of marriage today.
0: You took the words right out of my mouth. And you mentioned as well that they're reformers, as we are also reformed. The word reformed means that always developing the truth, always developing and and seeking to learn more about the truth, never standing still. It's an important aspect of being a Christian, being a Reformed Christian, to be studying God's Word closely to better know and better understand the truths that are set forth in Scripture. The attitude that we should have is that there is always more to learn, and therefore we must be uh, humble when studying Scripture, and we can't force our own opinions on others.
1: And what you have just expressed, the Reformers themselves gave us in a motto, Reformed and always reforming. The Reformation did not end with the Reformers, and they taught us that themselves, always reforming, and by that examination of Scripture, coming to a deeper and better and sounder understanding of the Word of God.
2: And though uh, Reverend Hoeksema went in a different direction, I guess you'd say, at that time when he studied the Doctrine of the Covenant, he didn't go off on a tangent, but he brought the church back to the Word of God when he taught the truth of marriage as an unbreakable bond. He governed himself by the word, didn't go off on his own.
1: Right, and there were pressures, I give him credit for this, that he took the stand and preached the stand that he did about marriage in the face of difficulties in his own congregation and in his own denomination. By the time that he came to the understanding of the truth of scripture concerning marriage, there were members of his own congregation and prominent members who had been remarried so that the pressure was on him to fall in line with the tradition of the Christian Reformed Church and to keep his mouth shut regarding his new understanding of the truth of marriage. But he was bold in that respect. He felt compelled by the Word of God to teach the truth of the unbreakable bond of marriage, regardless of the opposition that arose from his teaching out of his own congregation. Some years ago, I was researching this topic in the Standard Bearer, and it came to my attention that this opposition to what they called his new doctrine of marriage arose from very prominent members of his congregation and denomination. They wrote in the Standard Bearer, sharply critical of the stand that he was taking regarding divorce and remarriage, but he did not allow that to silence him He went where Scripture led him, regardless of the consequences in his own pastoral work.
2: Do you know at all how that went? This must have been in the Protestant Reformed churches that uh, this took place?
1: This opposition? Yeah. Yes. When In the early 1940s, as I recall, Hoekhsima came to the conviction that the Scriptures teach the unbreakable bond of marriage for life. Prominent members of his congregation, First Protestant Reformed Church, objected likely they had divorced and remarried persons in their own family, but in any case, they opposed him in the standard bearer publicly, and he printed their objections, and then took that as an occasion to instruct those persons and the entire Protestant Reformed denomination concerning what the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage. I think I have mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating, I think, to show the practical wisdom of Huxama concerning handling this There were members of his own congregation who were divorced and remarried. I'm not now approving of his action. I may criticize his action and may differ with his action. There were members in his church who were remarried and had families, about which we've spoken already. And undoubtedly, under Hoekhsima's influence, his response to this situation was that these persons could remain married. And members in good standing in the church, but they might never be office bearers in the church. This was his practical way of handling that difficult situation. And of course, no one might be remarried any longer. So when these people died, that was the end of the existence of that kind of situation in his own congregation.
2: I was just going to follow up on that a little bit if you knew... Did the consistory come to that conclusion and that's how they dealt with these?
1: The consistory of First Church made this decision as to its treatment of persons who had already been divorced and remarried. It was a consistorial decision.
0: Not just toxima. No, didn't, no. He didn't do it himself. This was the
1: consistory's decision. They might remain remarried, but they okay. might not serve in the consistory.
0: When you find that you no longer agree with a church's position on a view, what is the church orderly way of dealing with that?
1: If one differs, obviously, in a significant matter, o- over a significant matter with a decision of the consistory, the right church orderly biblical way is to bring an official protest to the consistory showing the consistory its error. And if the consistory rejects the protest, the Protestant appeals that decision to the broader assemblies, to classes first, and if it gets no satisfaction from classes, then to the synod. And if the synod upholds the decision of the consistory, the decision of the consistory is binding for the denomination. I'm not aware that these people who disagreed with the new stand of Huxma and his consistory on marriage ever went that Never far? Ever No.
2: Okay.
0: What about Huxma's route that he took? Did he, I don't know, send an overture to the synod saying his understanding how it had changed and how he had developed the doctrine of marriage or who, did, who does he appeal to?
1: Huximus simply preached it and taught it, and because there was no official synodical decision before that approving of remarriage after divorce, there was no protest that he felt necessary to make. Synod had not decided on this matter. It was a lively matter in the churches that could be preached about and taught by means of preaching and writing.
2: And publicly debated then, yes. and it was,
1: it sounds like, yes. okay. If the Synod of the Protestant Reformed Churches had earlier taken a decision, remarriage after divorce is biblical and permitted, then he would have been required to send an official protest to the Synod.
2: Rather than uh,
1: publicly just preaching, preaching against and, it. Yeah.
2: To my mind, I, I see a little difference with couples that were advised that they could divorce and remarry and did so in ignorance. What do we say with those who were advised that that was okay? Whereas, of course, we know others, are, they just go to a church where it's, it's allowed because it's their will. They willfully want to do that, so they would leave our denomination, let's say, and, and go to a, a church that allows it.
1: My thinking about all possible instances of remarriage after divorce is that it's adultery and forbidden and condemned. And the judgment of those persons is God's decision to make, but at the same time, the seriousness of their condition is that they're living impenitently in adultery. And as long as they live impenitently in adultery, they're not forgiven, so that their their eternal prospect is grim and forbidding, and that ought to enter into the call that the consistory gives to them to separate and not any longer continue living in adultery. Now, that conflict, evidently, with the stand that Huxim and his consistory took back in the early 1940s in handling it. I can appreciate what they did to try to handle that situation, but that complicates matters at the very least. If divorce and remarriage are adultery, you don't make allowances for continuing in that adultery, but you condemn it and call to repentance, and repentance always includes a change of behavior in the matter. Does that mean hardship? We've talked about that. It does. And to that, my response is, as I indicated before, the Christian life contains hardship. And before any of us embarks on the Christian life, we ought to know the very real possibility that we may have to give up our life for the sake of Jesus Christ. We have to be willing to do that. And our circumstances do not determine the regulations of the Word of God, but the regulations of the Word of God determine our situation. life.
2: So in other words, rather than thinking of it in an emotional way, it's our calling to to look at it objectively. What does the Word of God say?
1: Yes.
0: There is an emotional aspect to think of it as well, and it's not just, of course, the office bearers that deal with this. It's the members in the pew. You know, you and I sit in the pew, Jeff. We sit next to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we desire that they live according to God's Word. And if we see our brother walking in sin, then we are to do so with a loving spirit showing them in humility their sin and directing them to the truth of god's word so from that sense i guess we can have an emotional love for the brother and in that
1: there comes up in my mind an application to of what we're talking about to the present climate with regard to homosexual relations there are men in the Protestant Reformed churches or who have been in the Protestant Reformed churches who say, I love him, I love this man, even though I'm a man myself, and I can't bear to think of living without him, and I accept what they say about their feelings, but their feelings do not determine the stand of the church with regard to marriage or sexual relationships. And in that connection, the Bible has far, far more to say in condemnation of remarriage after divorce, and it has to say about the prohibition of sodomy. Just in a couple of places, a few places, there is explicit condemnation of homosexual relationships. And there are theologians in the Reformed sphere today who jump on that and argue if the Church has opened up the door to remarriage after divorce in the face of the abundant testimony of Scripture against that, she certainly may open the door to homosexual relationships. So that ought to be in the background of our thinking when we're talking about this. The implications mm-hmm. of our stand regarding marriage for a lot more than marriage.
0: Yeah, a, a useful material on the subject of homosexuality as well. We had a series of podcasts by Reverend DeBoer on our podcast, Hope PR Ministry. So if you're interested in listening And find out a little bit more about homosexuality check it out it's a very good series very informative and and covers a lot of bases we've talked about the development of the truth in terms of being reformed do you see professor any area of marriage that the protestant reformed churches could develop further or at least expound on
1: I think as far as the doctrine of Marriage is concerned. The Protestant Reformed churches have been led by God into a deep and broad understanding of the truth of marriage, and I'm not aware of any important aspect of the doctrine of marriage that the Protestant Reformed churches have not explored and confessed. But occasioned by the present-day uproar over abuse, I think there's a real possibility that a necessity that Protestant Reform ministers would make clear to all of the males in the Protestant Reform churches that headship consists of a governance of the wife and of the marriage as Christ governs the church, and not a brutal overlordship as though he is the boss of the wife and she has to jump when he says jump, but it's the lordship of love that seeks the welfare of the wife and wins her obedience rather than demands it and forces it. Ephesians chapter 5 is important here. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's a giving love. That's a sacrificial love. That's a love that never harms the wife. I think that, acts, that aspect of the headship of the man, especially in light of what's taking place and been exposed in the church today, that ought to be emphasized more than perhaps we have in the past.
2: It seems like in recent years, with more understanding of spousal abuse, that legal separation is more common. Maybe you could speak to that. God's word uh, is that adultery is the only ground for divorce. What about legal separation? Is that a second way to leave a marriage when there is abuse?
1: From what I have heard, and I haven't verified it, a mistake has been made by some that legal separation is really a form of divorce in the same category as divorce, and that therefore consistories and pastors would shrink from what is known as legal separation and insist that an abused woman remain in the house with an abusive husband. And I think that's a mistake, and that's injurious to an abused woman. And part of the problem, perhaps, is a misunderstanding of legal separation as though legal separation is a disguised form of divorce. My own understanding of the matter, and I think this ought to be the understanding of every pastor and consistory, is that there are abusive husbands who are so destructive of their wife that they force her out of the home and out of an actual intimate relationship with themselves. Now, the way that's put often is that the abusive husband forces the woman to leave but I don't find even that description of the situation to be true or helpful. She doesn't leave. I would insist on that. An abused woman does not leave, even though she packs up her belongings and walks out the door and rents a motel with the approval of the consistory. She's not leaving him, but he has forced her out. That's a different way of looking at it. And then, if he does not leave her alone, but forces himself upon her, even though he has forced her away from himself by his abuse of her, She is permitted to get legal approval that keeps him from coming into contact with her. That's legal separation. He has forced her away from himself because of his abuse, and then he attempts to force himself upon her still, and probably accuses her of having left him unbiblically. And she gets the decision of the courts that he may not have contact with her. Legal separation is legitimate. Legal separation is sometimes necessary, although all of this ought to be taking place with the knowledge and approval of the consistory. They decide that her situation is so, so bad and so destructive that it's a matter of his forcing her away from himself, and they approve of her decision to get the courts to approve of her wishes and need that he not have any contact with her. But under those circumstances, legal separation is permitted to a child of God. She's not divorcing. She's not performing the sin of leaving him wrongly. He's to blame for the whole situation. And she's calling upon the civil government to protect her physically from her abusive husband. And she has a right to do that. We have a right to appeal to the civil government to protect us from harm.
2: So in that specific situation, when she is in danger... That's what you're speaking of. Yes. Yeah. I had listened to your uh, or watched your YouTube uh, videos on spousal abuse. You had you gave a lecture some years ago uh, on this topic, spousal abuse. I did. And uh, in there, you mentioned that you had re-examined Scripture on this uh, or on this sin in the churches. Is that where First Corinthians seven thirteen comes in? Uh, you have mentioned that in an earlier podcast. Maybe we should read that. First Corinthians seven thirteen, and the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. Is that is that a passage that you have re examined in this regard?
1: Yes, I would say I've re examined that passage or to put it differently, that passage has spoken to me more distinctly and clearly than it had before. Now this case has to do with a husband that believeth not, and that brings up the fact that if there's a confessing Christian husband who persists impenitently to abuse his wife, he shows himself to be an unbeliever. So, at the same time that all of this is going on, the woman being forced out of the home and compelled to get legal protection, the consistory is working with the situation and is disciplining the husband. That's another fault we can make. We treat these situations as problems in a marriage and do not exercise the keys of the kingdom upon an abusive husband. He's in the process of showing himself to be an unbelieving husband, and he's not willing to dwell with her. Willing to dwell with her means more than that they both are under the same roof so that he can hit her and otherwise harm her and call her vile names from morning until night. Dwelling with her has the meaning of a peaceful living together in the marriage union and he's not willing to dwell with her and that's evident from the fact that he forces her out of the marriage relationship as far as its practice is concerned
0: that verse in first corinthians 7 verse 13 it says if if he be pleased to dwell with her let her not leave him is that leaving referring to legal separation or is that divorce because my bible has a footnote saying divorce
1: The point that this New Testament passage is making, the main point, and everything else is implication of the main point, is that there's a believing woman who's living with an unbelieving man. And the thought of the woman might be, I mayn't live, especially in the intimacy of marriage, with an unbeliever. After all, unbelievers deny Christ, and I as a believer confess Christ. I'm going to pack up my bags and my children and get out because believers may not live with unbelievers, and the rule of the New Testament is, regardless that the husband is an unbeliever, the marriage is valid. You live in the marriage with all the implications of marriage, sexual relationships, the help of the husband by the wife, and everything possible, as much as possible, that belongs to a marriage, because marriages are valid between believers and unbelievers. That's the point. Now, we're talking about different circumstances, in a way, because both of them are confessing believers. Both of them belong to the Protestant Reformed churches. This abusive man, when the wife shows that she's being driven out of the home and away from him, appeals to that. I'm a believer. You must stay with me. But the fact is that by his abuse of her, he's not willing to dwell with her. He's willing to have her in the same bed with himself. He's willing to have her make the meals for himself but he's not dwelling with her. He's abusing her, and she's not leaving him. He's driving her out. Leaving in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 7 refers to divorce. A believing woman may not divorce her unbelieving husband just because he's an unbeliever. But she's not leaving him. She's being driven out. When he doesn't recognize that and forces himself upon her just the same, then she appeals to the civil government to protect her. That's legal separation in my judgment.
2: So then the uh, the truth of the, that idea of dwelling with her, that, that would probably go back to Genesis 2 where God calls them to leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife. So that would be maybe the negative of cleaving to your wife would be refusal to dwell with her.
1: The main teaching of the text is that a believing woman is married to an unbelieving husband, and as long as he's pleased to dwell with her, she stays in the marriage, recognizing the marriage relationship, and she may divorce him, which is quite a a testimony all by itself, regardless of the implications. Such is the bond of marriage that it supersedes belief and unbelief, and that's because God instituted marriage for civil society before the church was formed. Marriage is not only for the church. Marriage is for civil society. But I say again, an abusive man, regardless that he calls himself a Christian, in fact, he's showing himself to be an unbeliever, forces his wife out of the house and away from his abuse, and she may seek legal protection for that separation. She's not divorcing him. She's the condition of having been forced away from him, and she has legal separate, legal power for that.
2: From your uh, experience in past history and in, in the churches, is it the case that church leaders in the past, from your experience and from what you have heard, tried to keep these type of situations, they tried to keep them together with the understanding that you may, you have to stay together in the home to be faithful in your marriage and reading this text that way so that they they were keeping an abusive husband with his abused wife.
1: Without any reference to any particular person or persons, it has happened in our churches, I hope it's not any longer, that a badly abused wife sought help from the consistory and the consistory appealed to this text to demand of her that she stay in the house and in the relationship with her abusive husband because for her to leave was forbidden by this text and was virtually a divorce. And when she, saw it, when she did it anyway and sought legal protection from her abusive husband in what we call legal separation, the consistory condemned her and accused her and virtually accused her of divorce, unbiblical divorce. And that was a mistake. And that's in part why we have women in the Protestant Reformed churches today who are loudly clamoring for third parties to solve their marital problems because, with some right, they say the church has not helped them. I don't approve of that. Uh, that, That is, that's not why I'm bringing that up. But this bears on your question. Yeah. And so I'm saying in brief, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 13 is not talking about a divorce, which the state recognizes, but as I've said, makes the point. Marriages between believers and unbelievers are are valid marriages, and the believer may not seek divorce on the ground of the unbelief of her mate.
2: I can see that it would be a powerful Pull to try to salvage a marriage and keep them together, knowing the permanency of marriage. But you're saying that that there there was a misunderstanding there in in these certain circumstances of abuse.
1: Yes, and I've mentioned this instance before, but it's applicable here. Without having studied this matter or referred to 1 Corinthians seven verse thirteen whatsoever, early in my ministry. What I called sanctified common sense caused me to see the truth of this matter. The young woman came to the study weeping with a little child in her arms, informing me that her husband, who was a member of the church with her, had been drunken and got a shotgun out of the closet and shot a hole in her presence in the ceiling of the house, threatening her, of course, that he would shoot her. And the significant question that she asked as soon as I opened the door to her was, must I stay with him? And that question was motivated by her recognition of the strong stand that the Protestant Reformed churches took about marriage and particularly the calling of wives to live with their husbands. And my instantaneous answer was, of course not. I will go with you and help you to get your belongings so that you can live somewhere else for a while, separate in the language of legal separation, while we work with your husband, and it's safe for you to go home. She was abused. She was driven out of the house by a 12-gauge shotgun. She didn't leave. She was driven, and he wasn't pleased to live with her. He was pleased to scare her to death, but he wasn't pleased to live with her. Now, that is a concrete example of how 1 Corinthians 7, verse 13 must be understood. I would only add on that matter that in such cases, there has to be a judge whether the abuse is severe enough to drive a woman out. And that's the role that the consistory must play. They judge all such matters of the life of the members of their congregation, not only for the protection of the woman, but also for the discipline of the abusive man who's living in grievous sin and must be admonished and disciplined if necessary. No wife may simply walk out of a, mer- uh, of a house on her own without the judgment of a consistory.
2: And that is admittedly scary for a woman knowing that they have mistakes have been made.
1: And Very. consistories are dealing with unfamiliar matters right now to a large extent, so that some allowance must be made for mistakes they've made in the past. But regardless of mistakes in the past, the judges in Israel are the consistory.
0: Regardless of the history, we trust that Christ is working in his church through the elders, for the good of his church and for the good of his people, we trust that he is working there. We're very thankful for you for the whole series that you've and the time that you've taken to sit with us, Professor. This has been really interesting.
1: I hope this is useful to the people of God.
2: Yeah, and uh, for our listeners, if you do have questions, once again, hope rwc at gmail.com. Email us your questions, and we will consider those and possibly have. Professor Engelsma on once again, and we can go through some of those questions.
0: And I, I, We we mentioned in the very first episode that we did as well that Professor Engelsma has written books on the subject of marriage, and we talked about the covenant in this as well. You've written books on the covenant. If you're interested in looking at those books and reading a little bit about your, for yourself, then you can see those at rfpa.org. Should be able to find the book you're looking for.
1: One of those books, if I may say so, is a very careful explanation of 1 Corinthians 7 from beginning to end, which is one of the two main passages in all the New Testament on the subject we're discussing marriage.
2: The title is Better to Marry.
0: Thank you once again for joining us today. We would like to thank Professor Engelsmer for taking the time to record these podcasts and we would encourage you to go back and listen to the previous episodes in this series, which you might have missed. We're thankful for the encouragement of our listeners once again, and we ask that you would send any questions or comments in to hoperwc at gmail.com. We'd also love to have you attend one of our services on a Sunday if you are in the area, and that is at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan at 9.30am and 5pm. Thank you again, and it is our prayer that you would have been edified by this episode.